This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. All right, we begin this new sermon series, When He Spoke, and today is sermon number one in that series. So look with me in Luke 23, in verse number 27, I'm going to read down through verse number 34. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bear and the paps that which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. In verse 34, we find our main text for today. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. This is the very first thing Jesus said or the very first time he spoke from the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I want you to look carefully at your bulletin today because in the introduction to this series, there's some pertinent things that I think will be helpful to you and uh, not only for this morning's message, but to study uh, and uh, use it as a help a resource for from now on when you study the Word of God. I believe this is going to enhance your Bible knowledge. But I want you to look at this because Jesus was illegally tried, and I'm going to give you the reasons for this in just a moment, but you have to know that he was illegally tried, illegally tried, six times after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when they came to Jesus... In the garden, they first took him to a retired high priest whose name was Annas. And you can write that down. The spelling is not important right now when you're taking notes. You'll get another one or two that you're not really familiar with. Just spell it the best way you can. I've given you the scripture references and you can go back and look it up again. But after they took Jesus to Annas, they took him to Caiaphas. Some people call, call it Cephas, Caiaphas, Cephas, however you pronounce it. And when Caiaphas was not satisfied in resolving the matter, Caiaphas sent him directly to the council or to what is known as the Sanhedrin. So you have to remember this now. This is all taking place in the night, in the middle of the night, right after he instituted the Lord's Supper. You remember what he said? He said, one of you is going to betray me. He gave it to Judas. And he said, what you're getting ready to do, he said, do quickly. 
Judas left the table, those disciples had that last meal with the Lord, that last private moment. Jesus led them down the stairs of the upper room. I've I've preached in the upper room on Sunday mornings on several occasions. And he led them down the steps to the upper room and he led them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he got into Gethsemane, you remember he told his disciples, he said, Peter, James, and John, I want you to come with me a little farther here. He said, I want you to watch and pray. I'm not really preaching on Gethsemane this morning, but as the Lord began to pray, and I'm going to get to a very important point in just a minute, so stay with me. In the middle of all of this, Judas is now leading a band of centurions to Gethsemane. He puts the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of Jesus. And they tie him like a stray dog and begin to lead him out of the garden. They took him immediately to Annas. Annas sent him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas sent him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin sent him back to Pilate. Pilate was getting frustrated with the whole thing, and so Pilate sent him to Herod. And after Herod was finished with him, he basically washed his hands of it and sent him back to Pilate. And so I want you to be thinking about these things. Now, Jesus was charged with five different crimes in the middle of the night. I don't know that I've ever given these to you in, in a point fashion or not, but uh, and th- they're not in any type of uh, categorical order here. I just want you to write them down to be familiar with the five things they charge him with. Number one, they charge him with blasphemy. Remember he said he was going to destroy the temple, raise it up in three days. They, they charged him with being the son of God, claiming to be. Of course, they did not believe it, but they charged him claiming that Jesus was running around telling people that he was the only begotten son of God. That was an offense. That was a crime. Number three, they charged him with inciting a riot. Number four, they charged him with forbidding people to pay their taxes. You, you see all of this stuff was just a kangaroo court here in just a moment. And then they charged him with claiming to be king of the Jews. I'm going to give that to you one more time here because This is what they arrested him on. They charged him with five crimes. Blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God, inciting a riot, forbidding the people to pay their taxes, and claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, all of these trials were illegal. You have to realize that all of this is happening simultaneously all night long. Now, the reasons why these six trials were illegal is because, number one, no trial of any sort was to be held during the feast time. That's very important. No trial of any sort was ever to be held during the feast time. And then number two, each member of the court 
was to vote individually. And each member had to cast their own personal vote whether to convict the criminal or to acquit the one that was charged with the offense. But don't lose this. Every member of the council had to vote and they had to do it individually to convict or quit. But Jesus, he was convicted by acclamation. And that means that Jesus was convicted on all five of these crimes just with the shout of the people. Everybody at one time began to say he was guilty at one time in unison. It was a loud, enthusiastic approval from everybody at one time. That was not permissible. But that's what they did. Number three, if a person was worthy of death, if the death penalty was given, a night had to pass before the death sentence was carried out. Now, this is very important. You have to, you have to really get this because you remember that Jesus was interrogated. He was tried all through the night, six different times, but it went on all night long. And just as dawn broke, they took him to the cross. So that's important to remember because if the death penalty was going to be the result of the person uh, accused, then before that person's death sentence was carried out, one night, one night had to take place first. It had to go to pass. However, only a few hours passed before Jesus was nailed to the cross. Number four, the Jews had no authority to execute anybody. That's important. Remember what they said? You remember what Pilate said? Let his blood be upon your hands and the hands upon your children. He said, I find no fault in him. You do it. The Jews had no authority to execute anybody. Number five, no trial. And this probably is one of the biggest of the, of the whole seven. No trial was to be held at night. But all of these trials were held before dawn. So all through the night, Jesus was tried, and by their own law, no trial could be held at night. And then number seven, the person accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions. And Jesus was directly asked, are you the Christ? Now, Jesus had no reservation in speaking the truth. But by their own law, they did to Jesus what was not permissible. They didn't treat Barabbas like that. It was against their laws. And so you have to understand that Jesus was hustled through the night from one person to the other. He was charged with five different crimes. And there were seven reasons why all of these trials were illegal. And so now here in Luke chapter 23, 
In verse number 34, we find the first time he spoke, we find in our text that this prophecy, this was a prophecy of Calvary, and now it was coming into full reality. And it goes back as far as Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. It was declared by God himself that Jesus would have to die. Jesus would bruise the head of Satan, and in that process, Satan would bruise his heel. Now, from Genesis 3.15, when it talks about the first prophecy in the Bible of the coming of the Messiah, from that point, there are 4,000 years now between Genesis and now this place. 4,000 years after that prophecy, I want you to understand that the darkest hour in heaven was now taking the center stage upon the earth. So you have to do the math here. Man is not, and I don't care what the scientists say, man is not billions and billions and billions of years old. There were 4,000 years in the Old Testament, 2,000 years now since uh, the, the, the the New Testament began, and now here we are just a little bit over that. The darkest hour on the planet now and the darkest hour in heaven is now getting ready to take place. And let me remind you of something. There were a couple of dark hours, real dark hours in heaven prior to this event. It was a dark hour when Lucifer rebelled against God. It was a dark hour in heaven when he led a third of heaven's angels in a revolt against God. It was a dark hour in heaven when uh, Jesus left the father's side and he came to this earth for a purpose. The only begotten of the Father. You think about that. But now, here is probably the darkest hour of them all. The only begotten of the Father was now in the hands. He was now in the possession, in the control of wicked men. As we all know, I want you to think about this just for a moment. The purpose of Jesus coming into this world. It was not for him to become a famous man. It was not for people to write songs about him. It was not that he would come to start a new religion. It was not that he would come to perform miracles as some type of entertainment for the people. It wasn't even for him to come that he might have strictly a human experience. His purpose in coming is found in the gospel of Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10. The Bible says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And let me be clear with something today. Everybody watching in the internet world, please listen carefully. And I want you to perk up here too. I've said this thousands and thousands of times. A person is either lost or they're saved. And nobody is born into this world saved. I I am starting to hear all kinds of things going on in the world today about this essence of being lost and saved and There are large numbers of people now turning into groups of people who are leading massive crusades that are taking different opinions than what this Bible says about the world to come and eternity. I have said many times that uh, Oprah Winfrey, she's made no apologies about saying that there's multiple ways to be saved, that Jesus is not the only way to be saved. I want you to know that just this past week, I heard Steve Harvey say that. Steve Harvey said this, there are over 800 cable television networks. And he says, all of the people that watch cable television for entertainment purposes, he said, are watching all of these channels for one reason, and that is to be entertained. 
And he said, so if people can reach out to over 800 means of, of cable television stations to find a way to be entertained, he said, think about the 800 different ways you can find entertainment. He said, there just has to be more than one way to heaven. His exact words were that. And he also followed it up by saying, there has to be more than one way to paradise. Here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he came to fulfill God's purpose and God's mission, the word says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the things Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, do you remember when he said, father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. What he was basically saying, God, if there's another way, If there is any other thing that I can do, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And God said, there is no other way. There is no other plan. He said, you have to die. This is the only way. The scripture says there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way. And I heard another man this week say this, that there are many paths up the mountain trying to get to the same place. I'm telling you today, This is a new age philosophy. It's a new age doctrine. Don't get sucked up into it. I don't care who says it, what they're reading for or from. It is only one way. Can somebody say amen? Only one way. Jesus came to fulfill that purpose. His purpose for coming was to provide that one way, that completed plan of salvation for all who would believe. I'm glad that when God presented the plan of salvation to the world, he included everybody. He did not e- exclude anyone. The word says this in Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. The Bible says, It's not the will of the Father that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here's the thing. God knew before man was ever created. God knew before man had ever sinned that one day he would sin and his sin, his separation from God, it would require his only begotten son leaving heaven. It would require him dying on the cross. It would require him shedding his blood. It would require him being raised from the dead. God knew that it was the only way. And here's the thing. If it was another way, if there was any other way possible, do you think for one minute that God would have sent his only son to hang naked on a cross to bleed and and die for the world if it was multiple ways God wouldn't have done that Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea he came empowered by the Holy Spirit to seek and to save that which was lost but I want you to know that it was far from a royal reception The Lord God tabernacled among men. He was here, but he wasn't wanted. The scripture says this in John 1, 11. He came unto his own and his own received him not. We all know that there was no red carpet welcome for the Lord Jesus. No red carpet celebration welcoming party when he arrived. Here's the story. You know it real quick here. At his birth, there was no room for him. Shortly after his birth, Herod tried to kill him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. When he began his public ministry, the word of God teaches us that his enemies accused him, and they were uh, truly despising him and rejecting him. Let me say this. The world, as we knew it then, according to Scripture, rejected him. It rejected him then. 
But here's the truth of the matter. The world by large is rejecting him today. People of the world today no more want Jesus today than they did back in his day. So now here we are in the scripture and this event in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, this event would escort Jesus to the climax of his divine mission and purpose for coming to this world. And as I study this, as I look at it, and you hold your bulletin, you have the pages of Scripture before you, we cannot help but to allow our minds just momentarily to reflect on the cruelty of the cross and the events that led up to this. I think it's important for us to remember as we get into this particular series that Jesus, this is, this is important, Jesus willfully yielded his life. He willfully gave himself to the hands of these wicked men. Don't ever think for one moment that when Jesus was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane that any of those Roman soldiers took him by force. That certainly did not happen because just the mere thought in the mind of Jesus, just the blink of his eye, you, you just with the spoken word, you're familiar with the song that he could have called 10,000 angels and he could have done that. But here's the thing, the divine time, the divine appointment had finally come. There was no other way. Jesus had to die. He had to die in our place. The divine appointment had come. Jesus was now ready to fulfill the Father's will. He was now going to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. And we must not forget this now as we're leading up to these particular sermons that after his betrayal in the garden, after he was tried illegally six times during the night, after he was accused of five different crimes, at one point, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And he did that on a number of occasions. In fact, he wanted to make a prisoner exchange. He was ready to uh, exchange Barabbas for Jesus. But even that would not satisfy the angry crowd of this mob. The crowd chose to let Barabbas go and they demanded that Jesus would be crucified. And then they begin to vehemently wail in the acclamation, crucify him. It didn't matter. Here's the thing that I want you to know. It did not matter what other type of justice they could have received. They only wanted two things. They wanted Jesus dead and they wanted him out of their way. And they were bent on that and they would accept nothing else. And so here's the thing. After the illegal trials of Jesus, Pilate permitted the horrendous scourging. They took the cat of nine tails. They whipped the flesh off of his back. They beat him beyond human recognition. In fact, the scripture for that comes out of the Old Testament. It was an Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 14, I don't have this on your bulletin. You might want to add it to go back and reference it at another point. But in Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 14, the Bible says, as many were astounded at the, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That means this, that Jesus, before he even went to the cross, he was beaten beyond human recognition. You have to understand what the cat of nine tails did. There were nine strands of leather and it had all kinds of sharp objects on the end of each strand. And as that Roman centurion would whip the back of Jesus, it wasn't just a thrashing on his back 
like maybe you would take a fly swatter of some sort, just swat him on his back. That wasn't like that. The cat of nine tails, it was a whip with nine strands and all kinds of sharp, jagged edges on the ends. And when that Roman soldier lashed that whip on Jesus, you have to remember now, as he drew it back and whipped his back, that cat of nine tails wrapped around his body. Those sharp edges took sort of like a fish hook uh, thing into his skin and then the Roman soldier would pull that off of him and you can imagine the flesh that's tearing from his body. They placed a crown of thorns upon his head. So before Jesus even got to the cross, they had beat him in the face so bad nobody could recognize him. His flesh was whipped off of his backs to where it exposed his vital organs. And then they shoved the crown of thorns upon his head at least two inches to penetrate to the bone of his skull. They led him down the Via Della Rosa. They led him outside of the city gates. And by the way, many denominations believe that uh, the church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Holy Land is where Jesus was crucified. And they have a big shrine erected over that. But here's the thing that I want you to be sure of. The church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside of the city walls. It's impossible. The Bible says they led him to Calvary, the place of the skull. I've been there many times. I have pictures. I, when I was preparing for this sermon, I really wished I could have showed you some of these pictures where I have been. I'll try to do that. Jesus was crucified outside of the city walls. When they got him to the place of the skull, they had a hole prepared. They nailed Jesus to the cross, his hands and his feet, and then they jarred that cross into the ground. And you can imagine now, as his, as his hands are nailed to the cross and as his feet are nailed to the cross, you can imagine when that cross jarred in the ground, you can imagine what it did to his hands and what it did to his feet. And now they're wailing and praising and carrying on. Soon after now, the crucifixion was put into motion. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, after all of this barbaric activity had taken place, they now have him in the position that they so desperately wanted him to be in. And now all of a sudden, in severe agony, the lips of Jesus begin to quiver just a little. And you can picture this in your mind now as he's hang, hanging there, the blood dripping off of his body, and his lips begin to quiver. His mouth opens up and you can see now as perspiration and the blood of his face, his head now is mingling together and his lips begin to quiver and he begins to make a sound and maybe the Roman centurion is trying to get the people to be quiet. Maybe he's even pointing. He's trying to say something. Everybody be quiet so we can hear what he wants to say. And then Jesus began to speak. But when he spoke, 
His words were not crying out for mercy. His words were not crying out for revenge. While the blood trickles down his brow and down his arms and body, he spoke these words of verse 34. Let's read it again together. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to look at that very carefully. These are the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and they are the words of forgiveness. The words of salvation, they are the words. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, those words goes to the very heart of salvation. I want you to think about this. You know, there's a lot of people in the world today that have a problem with forgiveness. Not everybody's willing or wanting or eager to forgive. Many people have a problem with that. You, you hear it in their whisper or you see it in their conduct. You feel it in their attitude. You bleed from it in their self-righteousness. There's some people that just cannot let go of something. Some people that just cannot get past something. Let, let me say this though. If you have a problem with forgiving people, I want to give you the key that will unlock those shackles today, right now. I want to give you three things that will help you to forgive people when you think they've done the worst to you and you just cannot get past it. You cannot get it off of your mind. You're carrying a grudge. Listen carefully. Three things you need to remember about that. Number one, when you forgive somebody, you don't pretend that whatever that offense was, that it didn't happen. It did happen. And you know it happened. And it caused pain. It caused heartache. It caused all sorts of problems. But if you're not willing to forgive, listen, it's not the person who did the offense that's in the chains and shackles of misery. If you want to be set free, listen carefully, when you forgive, you are setting yourself free. Let God work out the other part, but you're setting yourself free because if you don't set yourself free, you're going to spend the rest of your life locked up in the prison of misery. You will never experience the, the full joy, the full peace. You will never be able to live like Jesus if you are carrying around hostilities and grudges and you're not willing to forgive. So listen very carefully. You want to get over it, get past it, Get set free. The key is to forgive. Otherwise, you'll be locked in the prison of misery. And saying, I forgive you, doesn't mean that what happened didn't happen. Number two, when you forgive, if you, you'd be amazed how different things would be. But when you don't forgive, you have to remember this, that whatever that person did that brought you to this vehement place in your life, you have to be careful. Because if you go around saying, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why she said that. I would never do that. I, I just would never put myself in the position to do that. I just can't imagine why that happened. You have to be very careful because if that's the mentality, you have to go back to the scriptures and remember the word, doesn't that sound familiar? Peter said, I'll never deny you. 
I'll, I'll, I'll go to jail for you. I'll die for you. But here's the thing. You have to remember this, that whatever somebody did to you, you are very well capable of doing the very same thing to somebody else. So you have to forgive. You have to show mercy. But number three, Jesus said this, if you don't forgive, then you can't be forgiven. You say, is that in the scripture? Yes, it is. In Mark eleven twenty six. 26. And by the way, some, some new versions of the Bible have omitted this verse altogether. I mean, taking this verse completely out of the scriptures. I want you to see this. In fact, if you have an NIV, this verse is not in your Bible. But look how powerful it is. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you or forgive your trespasses. And so when Jesus spoke these words, now listen now, they were spoken directly to God. Jesus wasn't speaking to the crowd. He was speaking to God, and that's very important. Here we find Jesus in the spirit of prayer, and this is interesting. It was for me when I was studying this because Jesus began his public ministry in prayer. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, Look at this. The heaven was opened. And so now on the cross, the ministry of Jesus was actually ending in prayer because he was talking to God. When he began his public ministry, he began with prayer. And when he was ending his public ministry, he was talking to God the Father. He was in the spirit of prayer. What a wonderful example he taught us. He taught us to pray in life. He taught us to pray in death. And now here on the cross, he's practicing what he was preaching. And that was to love and to forgive your enemies. I want to share four things with you real quickly here. And on your bulletin today, I want you to write some things down. Maybe this will help you because I want us to notice a few things about these words of forgiveness. When Jesus spoke from the cross, we see the fulfillment of the prophetic word. What do you mean by that preacher? It was prophesied that on the cross, Jesus would become an intercessor. And the prophecy goes back to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 12. And the Bible says he made intercession for the transgressors. And so here's the thing. For those who were crucifying him, he prayed for their forgiveness. He made intercessions to God for them. And here's the blessing. Jesus not only prayed making intercession for the people then, but thank God he makes intercessions for us now. As our high priest and as our advocate, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is still interceding for his people. Aren't you glad for that today? Number two, let me be quick. Christ identified himself with his people and asked the Father to do the forgiving. And this, this was really a moment where I could pull up and park here just for a little bit. Now, there's a scripture that I want to give you that's not on your bulletin today, and you may want to write this down and go back and reference it again. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the word says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who? God made Jesus to be sin for us. Look at this. Who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How many times a day do you ever ask the Lord to forgive you? You think of something, you say something, you do something, you say, Lord, please forgive me. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't act like we do sometimes when it comes to that? I mean, the Lord doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't get puffed up at us. He doesn't harbor bitterness against us. He doesn't fuel any rumors against us. No, when we have sinned and we're truly sorry, uh, sorry about it, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I have sinned. I want you to forgive me. Cover me with your precious blood. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. The word says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Up until this point, this is the thing that really gave me some extra study here for a moment, and that was up until this point in the three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus, it was Jesus who was constantly doing the forgiving. I've got three examples I want you to see here real quickly. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, and I could give you more, but for the second time, I need to move quick. In Matthew 9, verse 2, the Bible says this, and this concerns the sick with the palsy. Jesus said, son, be of good cheer. Notice these words, thy sins be forgiven thee. In another place, in Luke chapter 7, verse number 48, he said to the woman who washed his feet with her tears, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. And in another situation, in John chapter 8, verse number 11, he said to the woman found in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. These are just three instances where Jesus spoke to people who needed forgiving and Jesus took time and he said, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. But now on the cross, Jesus is asking the Father to forgive. He didn't look to the crowd and said, I forgive you. He looked to the Father and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here's the reason. Jesus was taking upon himself the sin of the world. He was the just dying for the unjust. Jesus was dying. Listen carefully now. Don't lose this. He was dying as our representative he was taking our sin upon him. He became our vicarious substitute. He became our propitiation for our sins, the word says. So Jesus was no longer in the place of authority while he was on the cross. As in Bethlehem's manger, he once again took his place among the lowly. With the sin of the world upon his shoulders, only God could have made forgiveness possible. Number three, we see the blindness of the human heart. I've given you our text verse again. In Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted as raiment and cast lots. Look at this carefully now. They know not what they do. Now we know they were hysterical in the illegal trials. We know that when they actually jarred the cross into the ground of Calvary, there was a vehement hostility. We know that. That these people were so worked up in their mind that they were almost delirious. But I want you to know something. When the word says they know not what they do, that doesn't mean that these people were ignorant of the surroundings and the circumstances 
and the very acts in which they were committing. They wanted him crucified. They wanted him dead. But when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Jesus was saying, Father, they don't realize the enormity of what they're doing. Yes, they know they have crucified me. They are aware of that, but but they have no idea. They don't know the enormity of what they're doing here. They've refused to accept me to be your sacrifice, to be the only begotten Son of God. They have rejected me as the Messiah. They were blind in truth. When I read that, a startling thing came to my mind, and maybe you've thought about this over and over in your heart as well, how important it is that our loved ones, our friends, that their hearts are open to the truth. And when you have national spotlight comedians and all types of organizations who are very now, now starting to be outspoken, who has millions of followers, now starting to be outspoken about multiple ways to heaven. You think about multiple people who are going to listen to that and accept that as the truth because of their national status. And think about the millions upon millions that perhaps will die and go to hell believing that because there are 800 cable television stations, that there are more ways to be entertained. There are more ways to be saved. There are many paths up to the mountain. Listen, think about when people start peddling another gospel. Think about the eternal consequence that's involved with that. And so I pray that our loved ones know the truth. Our friends know the truth. And my prayer is this, that we will never get away from the truth. I pray that they will see the difference he's made in our life. Number four, and I want to close with this. I'm asking Brother Adam to come forward as we share this last point this morning. And I see the depth of God's redeeming love. I want you to notice just how far and how deep in the wretchedness of sin, God was willing to send his holy, righteous pure, perfect son to be the savior of the world. Notice this again in verse 34. Forgive them. You see, they they believed that Jesus was an imposter. They believed he was a blasphemer. And here's the thing that I want us to see this morning, that after man had done their worst, They thought it was a wonderful day to get the murderer of Barabbas back into their society. They took great pleasure in the mockery and the pre-brutality of the cross with Jesus and then the suffering on the cross. And he is still quivering from the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. They know not what they do. I want you to see the depth of God's love for us. In Romans 5, 8, the word says, but God commended his love towards us. Not when we were ready. Not when we were right. Not when we were lovely. 
not when we were worthy. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. God knew that this vehement crowd would be at the altar of God. He knew that they would be around the cross. He knew all of the vile things they were doing. But God was willing still to send Jesus, his holy, righteous, pure, perfect lamb, into the depth of wretchedness because he knew it was the only way. There are three things here I want you to think about real quickly. Those people did not realize what they were doing, but they still needed to be forgiven. Number two, sin is never tolerated or accepted by God. And I wrote a verse of scripture down that's not in your notes today, and maybe you want to jot this down in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. God cannot tolerate sin, for the wages of sin is death. So he sent his only begotten Son. The gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And number three, and this, this blessed me as I came to the close of the message, and that is this. With the world filled with vile, vile people, and this world is marching to hell in a handbasket today, but God so loved us then, God so loved us now, This is the beauty of his forgiveness. It does not matter what sin we have committed. It can be forgiven. In Mark chapter 3, 28, I want to close with this scripture. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies, wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. Now, I don't have time to get into the other part of that, the unpardonable sin, we know. But I'm so glad today that all of our sins can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Thank God Calvary covers it all. Thank God for forgiveness. So now as we prepare our hearts to think about these next sermons to come, I hope this helps you And I hope this sets the tone a little bit. I hope maybe you've learned something this morning. Put some things in in order and see the beauty of what God did for us through Jesus and the beauty of forgiveness. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.